we're going to spend some time in God's Word together. My name's Tim Owens. I am one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And if you are just joining us, we are near the beginning of a new series preaching through the book of Acts. Now, as you may know, one of the major themes in the book of Acts is the growth of God's church despite and sometimes even through opposition. In chapter 4, last week, we saw opposition from outside the church. The Jewish rulers arrested Peter and John, and they threatened them and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. This did not stop the church. Despite the persecution, the church gathered together, and they prayed, and they asked God for boldness. And chapter 4 and verse 31 says this. This is how God responded to their prayers. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Today, at the beginning of chapter 5, we'll see that Satan, Satan himself, is going to try a different tactic to destroy the church, a more subtle and sophisticated tactic. If persecution didn't work, perhaps moral corruption inside the church will do it. Our text for today is Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32 and going through chapter 5 and verse 11. Let's read the text together and then we'll pray and we will begin. Father, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching and the receiving of your word. Lord, we need this every single Sunday. We cannot hear and apply your word aright in our lives without the power and help of the Holy Spirit. But today, especially, Father, when we come to a very sobering text at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the warning of this text. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year 2005, I had the opportunity to travel to the Maasai Mara. This is a game park in southern Kenya and work with a ministry called Africa Hope, a ministry to the Maasai people who live in southern Kenya and northern Tanzania. Now, you may have heard of the Maasai people. They're extremely well-known around the world for a couple of reasons, both because of their very distinct culture, but also, and significantly, because they live near a couple of the most famous game parks in Africa. So you think of the Maasai Mara in Kenya or the Serengeti National Park in northern Tanzania. Now, that's the setting these game parks in Africa. That's the kind of animals, the kind of environment the Maasai people live in. And the Maasai people are pastoralists. That means they get most of their food and their livelihood from herding cattle. So I want you to stop and imagine, what if your job was to raise cattle on the plains of the Serengeti? That, that's a little bit like trying to raise cattle in Jurassic Park to me. This is a dangerous situation. And so as you might imagine, the lions love to disrupt the Maasai way of life. They, they love to kill and eat the cattle. And so the Maasai men developed an incredibly brave and I think 
really a remarkable strategy for hunting these lions. And they used this strategy for years, long after guns were a thing. Long after guns were available to them, they used this strategy. And it was this. Maasai boys, as they were growing up, were grouped into cohorts based on their age. So you might be in a group with some boys who are a year older than you, some were a year younger than you. But as they grew up and they reached a certain age of young adulthood, that cohort became fully responsible for protecting the tribe from lions, protecting the livelihood of the people. And when they did that, they were given two weapons to hunt these lions. One was a spear, and one was this. This is called a rungu in Swahili. It's a kind of wooden cudgel. And if you gave me a choice and said, you can choose two weapons, and you're going to hunt a lion, this stick wouldn't be on the list, okay? These are the weapons they had to use to protect the tribe from the lions. Now, when I was in Kenya, I met a man, a Maasai man named Tim Montai. I wish I could tell you more about Tim. He's an amazing, godly man. He now leads the Africa Hope Ministry there. But one night, we were sitting around and having some coffee, and I asked him, I had been hearing the whole trip, you got to talk to Tim about the lion hunts. you got to ask him. So finally, I worked up the courage to say, Tim, people keep telling me I've got to ask you in particular about these hunts. And this is what he said. He said, the lion, the way they, the, their approach to the lion is this cohort of, of young men would create a vast circle around the lion and they would slowly draw the circle in until they were close enough to bring the lion down with their spears. But the lion would almost always chase the last man to have thrown his spear. So the only way to save that man was for another man on the opposite side of the circle to step forward and throw his spear so that the lion would redirect. And that would continue with spears thrown from opposite sides of the circle until finally the lion would be brought down. Now I have to tell you this about Tim. He would not want me to tell you this. He was one of the most humble men I have ever met um, and almost a little reluctant to share any of these details. But he was on several of these hunts and was known for his bravery. And in fact, he was on a hunt where the lion broke out of the circle. And as they were rushing to reform the circle around the lion, he ran into a thicket. And Tim Montai was the first one to get to the other side of the thicket to reform that edge of the circle. But he got there two steps before the lion did. And he ended up on his back with this and lion paws here. Lion... Rungu, Tim Montai, and he survived that. Um, but as you can see, the success of the hunt, the physical safety of the whole cohort, the whole group of men, and also by extension, the well-being of the whole tribe, it was dependent on a few things. It was dependent on the unity and the bravery and the faithfulness of each individual man to stand forward and throw that spear when it was his turn. And Tim told me this was so important to the Maasai people that sometimes if a man abandoned his post mid-hunt, after the hunt, the rest of the tribe would kill that man. Now, I'm not here to comment on whether it was right or wrong for the Maasai people to exact 
such a harsh punishment for cowardice. But I want to draw your attention to two aspects of this story. One, there is unusual effectiveness and power in a group of people who are both brave and unified. Is there not? And two, there are times when the actions of an individual are so destructive to the community that serious action must be taken. Friends, in our text today, God is building a brave, loving, unified community, a community unlike anything the world has ever seen, but he sees something so dangerous and destructive in Ananias and Sapphira's action that in his sovereignty, and I believe in his mercy, he warns and purifies the church through their death. We might summarize the text this way. God is building a beautiful community by the power of his grace. Within that community, hypocrisy is a deadly, serious offense. God is building something right now, not just in the first century in Jerusalem. God is building something right now. He is building his church. He's building a certain kind of community, and he's building it a certain way by the power of the grace that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe the central tension of the text today is between God's grace, which is uniquely put on display in the church, and the dangerous sin of hypocrisy. Our text gives us three main points today. Very quickly, point number one is the beautiful community in verses 32 and 33. Point number two, a compelling example in verses 34 through 37. And point number three, a fearful warning, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Let's jump right into point number one, the beautiful community. Take a look with me back at verses 32 and 33. I want to read this to you. Now the full number, this is Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Don't you want to be a part of a community that could be described that way? Is this beautiful to you? I I think that's a, a relevant question in this text. When you read this description of the church, is this attractive to you? Where exactly does the beauty of the church lie? This is the second time in Acts that Luke has paused his narrative simply to dwell on the remarkable life of the new community of believers in Jesus Christ. The first time was in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, just after the events of the day of Pentecost. And now here at the end of chapter 4, he highlights exactly the same qualities that mark the church. What are those qualities? What is distinct about the church? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not their polished, well-educated leaders. Because in chapter 4, Luke told us that they were uneducated common men. 
I'll, I'll tell you something else that it's not. It's not their fancy, large, comfortable, air-conditioned buildings. Because later in chapter 5 and verse 12, Luke is going to tell us that this church was actually meeting outside on the porch of the temple, Solomon's portico. It's not in their amazing children's ministry or their amazing youth ministry. Not that there is anything wrong with these things, but when we give our attention to the church, the first things we ought to think about are the things that God highlights in Scripture. In Acts, the beauty of the church lies primarily in three things, and you will see these three things repeated over and over again. One, the church in Acts has an astounding, deep love for one another, a radical love for one another that we're going to see spelled out and demonstrated in this text. Two, they have a bold, a courageous commitment to the truth about Jesus. No matter what it costs them, they are going to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. And three, what is distinct about the church? Their love, their commitment to the truth about Jesus, and three, the presence and power of God among them. God's presence and power, deep, sincere love for one another, commitment to the truth. And these three things, they're intimately related to one another. If you pull one of these three things out, you no longer have the church of Jesus. You have something else. That's what I see in verses 32 and 33. Look, for, look back at verse 32. In verse 32, we see a depth of love and care that few of us have ever experienced outside our own biological family. And even in your biological family, this is a rare degree of love. Luke writes that they were all of one heart and soul. This is intimate language. And this was, it wasn't a superficial feeling. They weren't just feeling warm fuzzies toward each other. The people loved each other so deeply, so sincerely, that they were willing to sell their own property to meet each other's needs. Something beautiful, something to my thinking, miraculous has happened to these people. In verse 33, Luke tells us the apostles are preaching about Jesus with great power. This is consistent with what we saw in Acts 2.42. The people of God are devoted to the apostles' teaching. The church is formed and sustained by the power of a message. This is not a community association or a humanitarian club that exists only to meet people's felt needs. This is the church of the risen and reigning Christ. The church is a proclaiming testifying community of ambassadors sent from the king of kings to bear witness to a lost world to who he is and what he has done. And look, look at their boldness. Look at their bold. Look back at 33. With great power, the apostles are giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Peter and John were just arrested for preaching this message. They were ordered not to preach this message. They were threatened with violent consequences if they preach this message. And now they're back in Solomon's portico, which is the very place where they healed the lame man and got arrested. And they're holding a church meeting and preaching the message again. What kind of miraculous boldness is this? A few weeks ago, they were locked in a room, afraid. 
A few weeks before that, Peter was denying that he even knew Jesus on the night of Jesus' trial. Now he's like, you want to arrest me? Bring it on. I can do nothing but proclaim what Jesus has done for me. Look at the end of verse 33. This is crucial. And great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. How did the church become this deeply loving? How did the church become this courageous and bold? The answer is great grace was upon them. Luke uses the same adjective, great, four times in our text today. You're going to see it twice in verse 33. He says great power and great grace. And then down at the beginning of chapter 5, you're going to see it two more times. But that, the, in chapter 5, it changes its tone. We have great fear. The way the church responds to the death of Ananias and Sapphira is with great fear. And he closes the story in verse 11 by saying this, And great fear came upon the whole church and all those who heard these things. Great power great grace, and great fear. Friends, the church of God is designed to be motivated and transformed and empowered by God's grace, fueled by God's power and purified by reverence and fear before the holy God who is in their midst. Folks, it's crucial that we understand the relationship between these attributes of the church and the grace of God. So we're seeing this amazing self-sacrificial love, this amazing boldness and courage to proclaim Christ, and then we're told that great grace was on them all. What is the relationship between these things? How exactly does a group of ordinary, selfish, sinful human beings start spontaneously selling their property to meet each other's needs? How do the apostles decide to hold their church meeting where they got arrested a couple days ago? It's only by the fuel of God's grace. It's only by the heart-transforming power of the grace of God that comes to you and to me when we trust in Jesus Christ. Folks, if you are trying to muster up the energy to be the church Let me save you the trouble. You cannot do it. The church is so much more than a stale list of outdated moral rules. It's a community of people redeemed from the curse of sin, being incrementally transformed by God's grace and his power through faith in Christ into a beautiful community. A community that's marked by joyful, sacrificial love and fierce bravery and courage. Here is my burden for you this afternoon, and I believe it is part of the burden of this text. If you read this description of the church and honestly say, that is not me. And and I want to challenge you. God's grace is at work in Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena in many ways. Many ways. Don't, don't mishear me. But reread the passage again. I think 
everyone sitting in the room can read this passage and say, I'm falling short here. But if that's you, if you're saying, I've never even considered selling my home to meet the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ, or if you're saying, I'm scared to share Christ with my neighbor or my coworker, much less to risk imprisonment or death in order to proclaim Jesus, if that's you, the message of this text is not try harder. That's not the message of this text. It, the message here is that there is great power and great grace available to those who ask. The radical beauty of the church is more a matter of surrendering to what the Holy Spirit will do in you if you let him than it is about your own moral competence and and the strength that you can muster up on your own. It's about abandoning yourself and your life and your possessions to God and watching what he will do. That's part of what unites verses 32 through 37. They portray a large group of people, 10 to 20,000 people. That's how big the church in Jerusalem was in this text. A large group of people had decided by the power of God's grace to fully abandon themselves to God and his plan for their lives. Everything they had, all of their possessions, their house, their land, everything was abandoned to the work of Christ. Make no mistake, this passage ought to deeply challenge us But the invitation of the text is to believe in God's great power and great grace to remake you and me into a radically loving and courageous witness like we see in these verses. Now, let's consider what the grace and power of God did in the life of one man, the man Barnabas. And that brings us to point number two a compelling example. This is in verses 34 through 37, and I'm going to read those together. Verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In verses 34 to 37, Luke explains one of the key ways that God's grace was evident in the church in Jerusalem. He says that within the church, something extraordinary had happened. Something astounding had been accomplished in the church in Jerusalem, which, remember, is not a small church. Thousands of people, 15,000 people. And he says, there was not a needy person among them. How did that come about? He tells us how. What were the people doing? They were spontaneously selling their property. More than one person, many people were selling their property and bringing the proceeds and just laying it at the apostles' feet, saying, distribute it. Distribute it to anyone who has need. Then Luke gives us an example of a real person who did this, a man named Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I wish we could spend more time introducing Barnabas to you today. 
if Peter and Paul are the main characters in the book of Acts, then Barnabas is the best supporting actor of all time. I am excited for us to get to know Barnabas over the next several weeks. If there was one person, if I could choose to be anyone from the book of Acts, I think I would choose to be Barnabas. But for now, I'm going to have to restrict myself to two observations about this passage. First, it should not surprise any of us that a radically new attitude toward money and possessions is one of the key markers of God's church. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And a few verses later, he said this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In our hearts, brothers and sisters, in our hearts, there is an adversarial relationship between the love of God and the love of money. How is your heart doing this afternoon? Which master have you been serving recently? Let me encourage you to be ruthlessly practical in how you answer that question to yourself. You see, Luke gave us four whole verses demonstrating that the church in Jerusalem was willing to put their money where their mouth was. When we evaluate our relationship with money, we cannot simply say, do I feel like I love God and his people more than I love money? That is not enough. Our hearts are deceptive. When we analyze our own relationship to money, when we ask ourselves, am I falling into the trap of idolizing money, of serving money as my master? We have to look at our checkbook. We have to look at our actual spending to answer that question. And when we look at this passage, we are going to be convicted. Are we not? There was a radical generosity on display in the church in Jerusalem, a generosity that cost them dearly. Just a couple years later, in the book of Acts, a famine is going to hit Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And what is going to happen? If you know your New Testament, you know the story. The church in Jerusalem that used to have houses and lands and things to sell to meet the needs of the poor, they are not going to have enough to feed themselves anymore. And now the Gentile churches are going to have to take up a collection to support them. The actions they take in chapter 4 and 5, are going to leave them vulnerable. This is sacrificial giving, miraculous giving. Second, I want you to see something wonderful in the text that's very easy to miss. In verse 34, Luke quotes a promise from Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 4. In Deuteronomy 15, 4 and 5, God makes this extravagant promise. He says, there will be no needy people among my people. If, it's a big condition, if, Deuteronomy 15, verse 5 says, if you perfectly obey my law. There will be no needy people if you perfectly obey the law. And he gives this promise and this condition. 
in the midst of a chapter, chapter 15, that is full of laws about how he wants his people to treat the poor with compassion and kindness. This is the same chapter where God institutes the sabbatical year rules. Are you familiar with those rules? Every seven years, the children of Israel were commanded to forgive everyone's debts. And if anyone had gone into debt slavery, indentured servitude, they had to be released in the sabbatical year. Now, in the middle of the chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 15, God, foreseeing that his people would not be able to perfectly obey his law, he said this, there will never cease to be poor among you. He makes this promise, if you obey my law, I will provide so extravagantly for you that there will be no needy among you. And about seven verses later, but you can't do it. There will always be poor among you. And now Luke comes along in Acts chapter 4, and he says, there was not a needy person among them, using the exact same phrase used in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 4 in the Greek Old Testament. Do you see what Luke is saying? He's saying that what the law could not do under the old covenant for the Israelites in the old covenant, that is, create a society so generous that there was no poverty, the grace of God has now accomplished through Christ Jesus in the church of God. That's what he's saying. Luke is telling us that God's method of fulfilling his promise to fully provide for all his people is fulfilled not by our ability to perfectly keep the law. It's fulfilled when our hearts are so transformed by the love and grace we experience in relationship with Jesus Christ that we become generous people. And it was happening. By God's grace, it was happening. There were 20,000 people and not a needy person among them. That is one reason why it is wrong to interpret these passages in Acts as some kind of endorsement for a legal system like communism or socialism. Part of Luke's point is that laws cannot change the human heart. Law cannot produce the beauty that we see in this passage in the book of Acts. God's law can show us how we ought to be, but it doesn't have the power to transform us into it. Only God's grace can do that. It is so important for us to see the centrality of God's grace in this text if we're going to understand why Ananias and Sapphira's sin was so serious. And that brings us to point number three, a fearful warning, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to read the whole story of Ananias and Sapphira here. I suspect that the story itself will do more to lodge itself in your heart and soul than my preaching will. So let's read closely and take our time. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, he starts, he starts with but. He's drawing a contrast with Barnabas. Barnabas did this. The son of encouragement did this. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came on all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Folks, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is scary. And it ought to be scary. That is the point of the story. That is what Luke emphasizes. The result, the good result of this was that great fear came upon the church and all who heard of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Folks, put yourself in the Jerusalem church. Ananias and Sapphira are a married couple in your church. And the text says that they conspired together to sell their property and to put the money at the apostles' feet just like Barnabas did, but to keep back some of the proceeds of the sale for themselves. There's language in the text that indicates that there might have been a legal agreement, a deed or a trust where they had already pledged the entire amount of the sale to the church and then they kept back part of it deceitfully. God reveals to Peter what they have done. This is not an insignificant feature of interpreting this text. God took the trouble of revealing supernaturally to Peter what Ananias had done. Why did he do that? He did that so Peter could proclaim it to the whole church. So the church would know why they died. God could have brought this consequence into their life without revealing it to Peter or to the church in Jerusalem or to us. But he revealed it to Peter and the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write it down so that the church in Jerusalem and the church in every generation would have this story to sober us when it comes to this kind of sin. So what was the sin that was so serious that it resulted in the death of two people? It was lying to the church. And it wasn't just any lie. It was lying to the church in order to glorify themselves. This is what we call the sin of hypocrisy. This is the key sin of the Pharisees in Jesus' lifetime. You look at Luke 12, 1, Jesus says this, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark 
shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I don't know anyone who shouldn't be trembling when you hear those words of Christ. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Church family, Ananias and Sapphira had whispered in their private rooms a plan to lie to the church about the sale of their property so that they could look like they were generous like Barnabas, so that they could appear to be something that they were in fact not. Their motive was to glorify themselves, to be viewed a certain way, to be praised by the church. This is what hypocrisy does. It does two things. It both destroys the church's effectiveness and its God-given mission, and it's an audacious, dangerous insult to God himself. Follow me here. The beauty and effectiveness of the church is in God's empowering grace that comes to us through faith in Christ. Grace means this. It means that we no longer have to pretend to be anything that we're not. It means that we no longer have to hide anything about ourselves. The very premise of the gospel is that we are ugly on the inside, that we are hopeless sinners, morally compromised in every way, completely dependent on our salvation, on the finished work of Jesus. God God, by his power, by his grace and power, saves us, forgives us, and begins to transform us into a beautiful and generous and bold community. He does all of this a certain way on purpose. He does it by the power of his grace so that all the glory goes to Christ and not to us. This is what happens in the gospel. God gives you everything. You become an inheritor of the one who owns all things. He withholds nothing from you except one thing, his own glory. That is the thing that we do not get. Hypocrisy, on the other hand, attempts to steal that glory from God and give it to ourselves Hypocrisy is about turning the church community into an opportunity to glorify yourself. The very community that's meant to put on display the glorious grace of God is commodified and leveraged into an opportunity for personal gain. That's what hypocrisy does. It's like giving the middle finger to God. Look what Peter says in verses 3 and 4 again. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Ananias thought he was merely lying to Peter. He thought he was merely lying to the church. But when you lie to the church, when you lie to the community, community of people purchased by Jesus' blood and formed by the power of God the Spirit, you are not lying to men, but to God. Look at verse 9. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord in what sense were Ananias and Sapphira testing the Holy Spirit? 
They were testing the Spirit in this way. They were testing God's commitment to his own glory and his commitment to preserving the purity of the church as a community that would bring glory to him through the life-transforming power of the gospel. My friends, God's grace, it is not lenience towards sin. It is transforming power to walk in God's ways. It's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in all true Christians to become more like Christ. Hypocrisy is a deep offense to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is applying the finished work of Christ in the church, in the lives of individual Christians in the church. It's free. You see Peter drawing a contrast between the free grace of God and whatever constraint Ananias and Sapphira must have felt in their hearts. What does he say? The property was yours. Before you sold it, the property was yours. After you sold it, the proceeds were yours. What constrained you to lie to God? Barnabas and all the others who were selling their property weren't doing it under constraint. That's the whole point. They were doing it motivated by the free grace of God under the influence of a love that they had never experienced before coming to them through Christ's sacrifice. There was no reason you had to do this, Ananias. Hypocrisy spits in the face of what the Holy Spirit is doing. When we humbly admit our need and confess our sins, the Holy Spirit is ready and eager to respond with great power and great grace. But when we hide and lie, and especially when we lie in order to bring glory to ourselves in the church, we play a very dangerous game. God himself is among us, and he will not be mocked, and he will not give his glory to another. Church family, we we must walk in the fear of the Lord. This is the message today. God, by his own power and grace, is creating a beautiful community. A community unlike anything the world has ever seen. A community of deep, sincere, sacrificial love. A community that boldly proclaims the truth about Jesus no matter what it will cost us. A community that reveals a glorious, gracious, powerful God to a watching world. Within that community, hypocrisy is a deadly serious offense. An offense against God's grace. An offense that completely undermines the mission of the church. The worship team can come on up. There are many ways that we can faithfully apply this text to our lives this afternoon, but I want to encourage you to consider two things. First, I want to encourage you to consider, in light of this text, the end of Acts chapter 4, the beginning of Acts chapter 5, consider, do we have anything that we need to repent of? Folks, don't misunderstand me. I said before, and I'll say it again, our church is doing many of these things so well. You are a generous church. 
you are providing for each other's needs. The grace of God is very evident in the life of Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. But this text, this text sets a very high bar. Does it not? Selling their houses? Selling their land? Holding everything in common? They didn't consider that anything that they had was their own. When these people came to faith in Christ, everything, everything about them came in to the cause of Christ. These people were all in in such a radical and attractive way. Don't you want to be this brave? Don't you want to say, I don't care what the culture has to say about Jesus and my faith. I must proclaim what Jesus has done for me. I must stand for the truth of Christ. Don't you want to be set free from worry about your finances and wondering and spending all your time and energy potentially serving the wrong master, building up things, possessions, stuff, money on this earth? No, we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. God owns everything. He's promised it all to you. He said, be a part of my church. There will be no needy among you. You don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. You are free to give everything you have to the cause of Christ. Church family, there are three primary areas that we can consider whether or not God is calling us to repent this afternoon, and they are briefly this. Radical self-sacrificial love that shows itself first and foremost in this text in our finances. But secondly, there are many ways that you and I can radically love each other in this church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, time, energy, prayer. There are many ways that God might bring to mind that we can, under the influence of God's grace alone, through faith alone, because we have received a love better than anything we have ever tasted, and we can turn around and freely spend our time, our energy, our money, our talents to love our brothers and sisters in the church. Radical, self-sacrificial love. Second, bold evangelism. We do not live in a culture that is more contrary to the gospel than Peter did, than this church. And yet they decided after they got arrested, let's hold our church service right there. Let's let them know that the message of Christ is so valuable that we will not back down for anyone, come what may. Folks, our culture may be antagonistic toward the gospel, but it's not that antagonistic, praise the Lord, yet. Boldness and evangelism. Is there repentance needed in that area? And finally, and maybe most significantly, hypocrisy. I cannot tell you how common this is. Trying to appear as more holy than I am so that I will receive the praise of man in the church. It is only God's grace that many of us are still here to hear this sermon. If you think that you are better than Ananias, I invite you to think again. God in his mercy took radical action in the life of Ananias and Sapphira so that we would have a serious warning, so that we would walk in the fear of the Lord. Do you have anything to repent of today? Because when you humble yourself, the Holy Spirit is there with great grace 
and great power to meet you in your need. And second, we need to believe. We might need to repent, but we need to believe. Folks, the Holy Spirit is just as active, just as powerful, just as eager to infuse Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena with this kind of life as he was in the first century. If repentance brings us low, faith in God's grace and power, which is abundantly available because Jesus has paid the price for your sins, ought to lift up our eyes. I pray that we can walk out of here today confident and even excited about what God can and will do in us as we humble ourselves, confess our sins, and ask for his power. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering text, a difficult text to preach, a difficult text to receive. Please send the Holy Spirit to be at work among us, Lord. If there are ways that we need to repent today, may we not walk out of this room without coming to the throne of grace, confessing our sin, and asking for your mercy and power to meet us in our time of need. You have, you have told us that because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we can come to the throne. The way is open for us, and we can receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Lord, if we need to repent of something today, give us the grace to do that. And Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith in a powerful, active Holy Spirit at work among us today. A Holy Spirit that can make us bold just like the church in Acts was bold. A Holy Spirit that can sever our love for money and possessions and redirect us toward laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, would you do that miraculous work among us? In Jesus' name, amen.